This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Thank you for coming, everybody. So this is going to be a little bit uh, different for me. I give this talk in an isolated fashion around the campus, around the San Francisco Public Library, and I'm inserting it, integrating it into the Osher Mini Medical School for this purpose. Um, it's related to what Do- uh, Lieutenant Artiseros was talking about last week, but it's more about the preparedness side, what to do before the earthquake, less about the response. So about every uh, decade or two, uh, major cities on the West Coast experience earthquakes that are strong enough to cause substantial damage and injury, as I'm sure you know. And about once a lifetime, we have the truly big quakes like the 1906 Great San Francisco Earthquake. And yet we're all still here, right? We all want to live here. And the good news is that we can because there are precautions that we can take that make the difference that allows us to, to withstand earthquakes without too much difficulty. The problem is, however that we know that we're supposed to be taking these precautions, and yet for a number of reasons, many people don't take them, and they're basically asking for trouble. So as you heard, I am Matt Springer. I'm a professor in the cardiology division here at UCSF, and I should say right off that earthquakes are not my official area of research at UCSF. We do not have a seismology department here. The reason that I give these talks is, as you just heard, I have been uh, personally impacted by the last three most destructive quakes in California. Uh, 1971, 89, 94. And so I've become very well, um, very familiar with the sorts of problems that occur and well versed with these precautions that we can take now at home and at work. And these are really things that will make the difference between an earthquake being a negative event in your life and just being something that's interesting to talk about years later, like today. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take the first part of the talk to tell you about my own experiences in some of these larger uh, earthquakes. We'll talk a bit about what to do during a quake and immediately after a quake and spend the rest of the time talking about these precautions that we can take. So I'm going to start with the state of California. And I think that you can recognize California here even though the state lines aren't drawn on this picture because we have a number of unique and recognizable features in California, the, uh, the bay, central valley, the hills. But what's important to realize is that all of these unique and recognizable features are caused by seismic activity. We have earthquake faults up and down the state, as I'm sure you're aware, giant cracks in the ground. And if you look really closely, you can see these giant cracks in the ground. So there is a big crack... There's one down here and down here. And if you take a close look at the Bay Area, you'll see that we owe our existence essentially to uh, three main fault systems that you've no doubt heard about in the news, the San Andreas, Hayward, and Calaveras faults. Now watch what happens when I take these faults away. Look at the East Bay, first of all. The East Bay is basically defined by those fault systems. What I think is really interesting, though, is that a lot of what we know in the North Bay and in the peninsula are parts of the San Andreas Fault. So if you look at the uh, Tamales Bay that separates Point Reyes from the rest of Marin, if you look at the Crystal Springs Reservoir that you see when you're driving on Highway 280, that's all the San Andreas Fault. And in fact, I had already been giving this talk for several years, and I flew out of San Francisco Airport to go to a conference and looked out the window just in time to see this. So we've just left the airport. We're heading towards the ocean. That is uh, 280. There's the Crystal Springs Reservoir and the Associated Lakes. And two things occurred to me as I looked at this scene. First of all, well, there really is a giant water-filled crack running up and down the peninsula. That was pretty amazing to me. And the other one, the other thought that occurred to me was, 
did they really need to put a neighborhood right there? <laughs> I mean, you, you hope that they know what those they're sitting on, and I, I think they probably do, but it's pictures like this that remind us that we live with the effects of earthquakes every day in the Bay Area. So my first experience with a relatively large quake, you know, we've not experienced the big one, no one in this room has, but first experience with a relatively large quake was there in the Southern California. I grew up in the sleepy suburb of Northridge, which at the time no one had ever heard of, and that was going to change. But this was the Silmar quake, 6.6 on the Richter scale. And in 1971, I looked about like this. Uh, I'm assuming you can tell which of those is me in the, in the pictures. And the reason that I like to show this picture is so that you won't think poorly of me when I tell you that in 1971, I was afraid of the dark, but not if I was in my bed then it was okay. And so I had a routine that if I had to get up in the middle of the night and use the, the bathroom, and I would come back, I would turn the light off, I would run through the dark room, and I would dive into my bed and, and land, and the bed would bounce up and down a couple of times. And the timing was amazing. One morning in 1971, I did that. I dove into bed, landed, the bed bounced up and down, and it didn't stop. It just, it just kept going. So I'm this little kid trying to figure out why the bed keeps moving, and my mom showed up at the front, you know, the doorway and said, uh, we're having an earthquake, we've got to get under the kitchen table. So we all got under the table and we waited for it to finish. And, you know, we did okay in this earthquake. We had a couple of things fell off shelves. We had some cracks in the concrete in the patio. Um, we actually had a small portion of a brick wall between our backyard and the neighbors cave in just a little bit. But other than that, we were fine. <coughs> now, later that night, our entire part of the San Fernando Valley was told to evacuate because there was concern about potential damage to the Van Norman Dam, which was nearby. And so they wanted us to be out of there while they made sure that it was not about to burst. So we spent the night at our cousin's place, and I think the next day we had the all clear and we went back. So that was it for us. We did okay. Now, not everyone was that fortunate in this quake. There were 65 people killed. Um, I've got some pictures here of some of the more notable instances of damage in this earthquake. So this, for example, is a freeway interchange just north of the San Fernando Valley. It, uh, it fell down. They rebuilt it bigger and better than before. No problem. This, on the other hand, is very notable to UCSF and everyone else in the medical profession because this is a hospital near the epicenter of the quake. That is a, a building, a whole wing of the hospital has fallen over. And it is this event that has started this constantly evolving series of seismic standards for hospitals, and we're still at it today. So if you look around you, the new hospital at SFGH, the new hospital at UCSF Mission Bay, all the construction and renovations here, new buildings at the VA, the list goes on and on. It all started here, folks, and it's still going. Now, as you're probably aware, in 1989, we had our own quake, the Loma Prieta quake. It was a 6.9 on the Richter scale. And we tend to think of this as a San Francisco earthquake, but it really it was a Santa Cruz quake. That's Santa Cruz. That's the epicenter of the quake, and I hope you can see that. I, I'm at a bit of an angle from the screen, so if everything looks a little dark to me, but it's coming out okay, good. So in, in the 1989 quake, well, here's me in 89, a grad student at Stanford at the time. And I show this picture so you can see how far away I was from the epicenter of the quake. And of course, anyone who was here in San Francisco or Oakland, even farther away, and as any of you know who were here at the time, we all got really shaken up in this earthquake. Big, big area. It was very surreal for me because I was walking across the campus at Stanford. It was 5.04 in the afternoon, I believe. Uh, I was walking from the music building to the biology building. 
and there was no wind that day, and yet suddenly the leaves of the trees started rustling. And then the clock tower bell started chiming, and then the ground under my feet started moving. So you could see this, this sideways progression. And the whole time, there was no noise except for the bells and the leaves. It was not like a Hollywood sound effect with rumbling or anything like that. So very, very surreal. Uh, and this was pretty amazing for Stanford. Stanford had buildings that were closed for years as a result of this quake. And as a matter of fact, this quake was on national television. You remember the uh, World Series Game 3 had just gotten underway at Candlestick Park. So everyone was watching our earthquake and uh, the whole country thought our, that California was falling into the ocean or something. wasn't that bad, but of course we did have problems in this earthquake. So for example, 62 people killed, several thousand people injured, and here's downtown Santa Cruz. Uh, took them years to come back from this. As a matter of fact, I thought that the dust had basically settled from the earthquake, and yet years later I heard on the radio, oh, Santa Cruz is celebrating the reopening of its downtown. And I thought, wow. That's pretty amazing. So they really took it on the chin. Here's a picture of the Cypress structure in Oakland. It was the double-decker freeway there. I'm sure you remember. The top part uh, collapsed in on the bottom part. And I should mention that the majority of casualties in this earthquake occurred right here, and that included a UCSF van pool of people going home that day. So uh, that's our personal connection uh, with this. The next picture I'm going to show you, you've seen a lot over the past couple of years the eastern span of the Bay Bridge, where the top part also collapsed in on the bottom part, you know, they, they retrofitted the western span, and they decided that it was cheaper to build a new eastern span than to retrofit it. And so last year, 24 years later, we got our uh, eastern span of the Bay Bridge. An amazing story, if you ask me. The last picture I'll show you sure you've seen this before. It's a picture of the Marina District. The Marina did very poorly in San Francisco. They're built on landfill, and we'll get back to that in a couple of minutes. Now, in 1994, everyone heard of my hometown, Northridge. Uh, We had the Northridge quake at 6.7 on the Richter scale. I was not there for this earthquake, but I'm very familiar with this quake because my mother lost her apartment and everything she owned in this quake. In fact, a neighbor had to come and kick down her door to get her out. My father spent uh, days cleaning up the mess in his apartment after the quake. And I saw a lot of the places where I used to hang out as as a kid on the news with flames and destruction. So I, I know this earthquake very, very well. And in the 1994 earthquake, 51 people killed, several thousand people injured. And are these numbers starting to seem a little familiar? Doesn't it seem like I keep showing you similar Richter scale numbers, similar numbers of of fatalities and injuries? And I think that what's happening here is that these are the earthquakes that are large enough to cause substantial damage and injury, and yet small enough that they happen with regularity. You know, those 1906 earthquakes, they don't happen very often. And these do. And that's one of the bottom lines of this talk. One of the take-home messages is that, honestly, I don't know if we're going to experience another 1906 earthquake in our lifetimes. You can almost bet that we'll continue to experience these. And Napa last year wasn't as big, but it was a good reminder because they had a lot of similar problems up there in Napa. So we definitely need to be preparing at least for this kind of earthquake. Now, in this earthquake... Well, I showed you that picture of the freeway interchange that collapsed in the 1971 quake that they rebuilt, bigger and better than before. Well, it fell down again in 1994, and uh, what can we say? We, we continue to learn about these things. We keep building better structures and learning what works. 
Here is a picture of the Bullock's department store, which was a place that I used to hang out at as a kid. It was a Northridge fashion center, shopping mall. And this really surprised people. This is Cal State Northridge, and that is a parking structure there. They had just put this building in a year or two before the quake. So this was not an old legacy building. This was modern architecture at the time, and it failed. So I think that they learned a lot from that. But, you know, for, for me, for my family, the really notable uh, example of damage is this picture right here. Because I told you that my mother lost her apartment in the earthquake, but she was actually fortunate because when she moved into that apartment, she chose it over this one, the Northridge Meadows, which has become like a poster child for this quake because it used to be the same height as its neighbor. That's the third floor. That's the second floor. The whole thing is collapsed in on the first floor. And the first floor was a parking garage, and it's these so-called soft-story construction buildings that are especially dangerous in earthquakes. It's where the, the ground floor is a parking garage or a storefront that doesn't have as much sheer um, uh, structure to it. And if you're probably thinking to yourself, yeah, maybe half the buildings in the city of San Francisco fit that description. So we have a real problem in this city. And as you're probably aware, they've recently made it mandatory for multi-unit buildings that are older than the early 70s, I believe, and larger than, I think, five units. It's now mandatory for those to retrofit. Uh, if all of those buildings were to fail, San Francisco would have a housing, uh, a homelessness problem unlike anything you've ever seen. So this is a really big problem. So at any rate, I don't want to freak you out too much. The last thing I want to do is to make you all hop on the next plane to the East Coast or the Midwest, where, by the way, they also have earthquakes. Sorry. Um, but the point of this is that if, you are, if you're not scared of earthquakes at all, I want to scare you a little bit. <laughs> if you are scared of earthquakes, I want to reassure you, because most of the problems that have occurred in these earthquakes are preventable. And in fact... Most of the damage didn't look like this. Okay, I, I admit, I've picked the most dramatic pictures to show you. Most of the damage in all of these quakes consisted of things falling down, things flying through the air, things falling over, sort of problem that we can prevent against by taking precautions now. And, you know, I want to mention, by the way, also, for legal reasons, if for no other, that the precautions that we are going to talk about are not foolproof. It's like wearing a seatbelt is a darn good idea because it drastically reduces the chances you'll be hurt in a car crash, but it doesn't guarantee that you won't not, will not be hurt. These precautions will not guarantee that you won't have a problem in an earthquake. They'll just drastically reduce the chances that you will. I think you can see why I need to say that. So at any rate, to summarize what we've seen so far, quakes happen. They always have, they always will. And so if you look what we've seen so far, we have uh, the 1971 down south, we have the 1989 up here, 1994 down there. In 2001, the Seattle area had a similar earthquake, similar story there. And if you want some context, that great San Francisco earthquake of 1906 is thought to have been about an 8. And the uh, Richter scale is a log scale, so you go up one number, it gets 10 times as worse. For further context, if you have been around for the, la the last few years you probably know that we've had quite a lot of little baby quakes that we could barely feel. And I've been keeping track of those and having them show up on this slide. These are not all of the earthquakes that occurred. They're just the ones that we felt in San Francisco. Okay? And so I'm going to let that run until the middle of 2011 and then stop it for a minute. Because look what's happening. Those earthquakes are forming a line, and those earthquakes are falling, forming a line. 
And those lines should look familiar to you because that is the San Andreas Fault and that is the Calaveras Fault right there. Notably absent is the Hayward Fault here in 2011. But then later on in 2011, we had a whole bunch of little tiny quakes right there in the Hayward Fault. And so I'm going to have to stop collecting stars on this map because it's starting to get hard to read. But I did actually include last year's Napa quake because that was pretty notable. So what can we get from this? Obviously, we, we have earthquakes, and they're, they're moderate. They're moderate to large. If you want further context, there was a huge quake in Chile in 2010. It was 8.8, and it's tied for eighth largest ever recorded. The Japan quake that happened in 2011, 9.0, four-way tie for the fourth largest quake ever recorded. And the 2004 Indonesia quake with that monstrous tsunami that killed hundreds and thousands of people is actually, at a 9.1, the third largest ever recorded. So we've seen a lot of these really big quakes. And in case you're curious about what is the largest earthquake ever recorded, well, that's, uh, that's Chile also. They have that distinction. 9.5 in, uh, I think, 1960. What I've heard, and I'm not a geologist, but what I've heard is that the planet cannot generate a quake much larger than that. That's about as big as it gets. But I do want to say something about this. I'm not just you know, tossing out more and more stars for the fun of it. Ever since the Japan quake, especially, I've heard people really concerned that that sort of thing, that sort of disaster could happen here. And the answer apparently is yes and no. Um, these massive, massive quakes, like the big stars on the bottom, occur in subduction zones. And this is the only technical part of the whole talk, I promise. Subduction zones are where one plate is diving underneath another and that is what generates these monstrous quakes that rip hundreds of miles of the Earth's crust. Here in the Bay Area, our fault system is a little different. We have one plate sliding against another, and what I've heard is that the largest that that can generate is about an eight. So San Francisco earthquake of 1906. Small consolation. That was, that was pretty big, but at least, you know, it presumably will not be these massive planetary shaking quakes occurring in the Bay Area. So... I want to say a few words about where you are in an earthquake because the kind of soil that you're on will make a difference. This is a liquefaction map. It's a simulation, and you can get pictures like this for the other cities in the Bay Area from the Association of Bay Area Governments website. These are all simulations based on different kinds of earthquakes in different places, but they all give you about the same picture. The red, different shades of red is the worst. This is where the ground is going to temporarily behave like a liquid and lose structural integrity. The yellow is the, the next bad. The blue and green are the best. Um, the green is actually landslides. That's, that's another story. But in terms of the, the ground actually behaving like a liquid temporarily, blue is best. Now, this next map is done a little bit differently. It doesn't give us the same picture on the western side, unfortunately. But it's a very similar picture on the eastern side. And I like this because you can see down to the intersection where you are. And if you're curious why there's this very strange contour of this green soft soil area, all you have to do is look at what San Francisco looked like before we started filling in the bay. And you'll see a remarkable resemblance. So I told you that the marina is based on, is built on landfill, right? Well, there is the marina then, and there is the marina now. And the irony of this is that they filled in the, this area for the 1915 Panama Pacific Exposition, we're now 100 years later on that, to celebrate San Francisco's recovery from the 1906 earthquake. It didn't get tested till 1989, and it didn't do well. So, uh, you know the other UCSF location over on the other side of the city, Mission Bay? 
You ever wonder why it's called Mission Bay? It's kind of a strange, strange name for a bunch of land. Well, it used to be a bay. So there's uh, Mission Bay then. There it is now. So the uh, university campus is around there. The hospital actually touches onto the solid ground. The uh, Giants ballpark is there, the construction right there. And as a matter of fact, if you're at AT&T Park and you follow McCovey Cove, there's that channel that goes in uh, next to Berry Street. That is all that's left of Mission Bay, that, that water right there. Um, and we'll, we'll get back to this in, in a minute, to this landfill idea, but I did want to mention that as they have been excavating in the financial district over the years and digging down into the ground, they've been uncovering boats because landfill is anything you use to fill in the water. <laughs> it's not necessarily strong. I, oh, I actually wanted to, to give you a real-world example of ground rearrangement. Get this. In 1995, I went back to Northridge. It was the year after the Northridge quake. And I wanted to see how my old house, that where I grew up, had held up. And so I went to the house, and I introduced myself to the guy who was fortunately home. And he told me that, first of all, it was the best house in the neighborhood in terms of damage. I mean, each house had a big pile of, of rubble out in front in the street. They were at that stage of repairs. Best house in the neighborhood. But what was really interesting is that he had just tilled up his backyard before the earthquake to put in a new lawn. So he said before the quake, it was all chunky soil, and after the quake, it was smooth, and all the pebbles had risen to the top. <laughs> so that's, uh, that's ground rearrangement for you, and that's, that's what is happening in soft soil that buildings are sitting on top of. <clears throat> Pardon me. Now, so we'll get back to this landfill in a minute. But first of all, I'm sure that you can't read this from where you're sitting. It says Great Sand Bank. Okay? The entire western part of the city is sand dunes. And so even though in this particular map they don't show it, people who live or own property in the western part of the city have to worry about the sand underneath their structures. And I'll get back to that in a minute, too. First, let's talk about landfill for a minute. So I get this question all the time. Say, given what happened in the marina district and given what happened building on landfill, why in the world are we doing the same thing at a much larger level in Mission Bay? Why are we putting a university, hospital, Baseball park, now basketball arena, condominiums, apartments, all of this stuff. Why are we doing this? Are we being stupid? Well, I live in Mission Bay. Um, I apparently don't think it's that bad. And the good news is that we're better at building on landfill than we used to be. So if you're walking around Mission Bay, whenever they're getting ready to build a new building, you will hear this obnoxious pow, pow. If you're lucky, you'll just, hear, you'll just hear drilling. But one way or another, they're getting ready to drive these 50 to 70 foot steel piles down into the ground. And so this is a picture that I took at the corner of Fifth and Berry a number of years ago. It's where the Avalon Phase Three apartments are standing right now. And so they're taking these things, they're hammering them all the way down to the ground. They're welding another one on top. And they keep going, cycle after cycle, until they hit bedrock or point of refusal. And not just a few of these things, whole forests of them. So each of those buildings is on hundreds of these metal piles. And so you can, well, as a matter of fact, some of the buildings that they've been building south of the channel now, these things are going down as much as 260 feet. So think of these buildings that you see in Mission Bay as the tops of skyscrapers, where most of the building is underground and is on solid ground. Now, unfortunately, they're not doing that to the streets, just to the buildings. And so if you walk around in various parts of Mission Bay South right now, you see examples of where the sidewalks and pavement are uh, sinking and the, the buildings aren't. And so 
This one, for example, is an apartment where this was taken last year. This has gone a, a lot deeper, and they've now turned this into a step. They've, they've put a ramp that leads up to the entryway of that building. So uh, maybe uh, something else to worry about. The sea level is rising. The ground is sinking. <laughs> it's a topic for another talk one of these days, I suppose. What about the West? So this is a picture of the Sunset District in the 1800s. They uh, called it the Outside Lands, and that's where they got the name for that music festival in Golden Gate Park. And I particularly like this picture. It's taken from Golden Gate Heights, 15th and Ortega, looking out over the ocean. That is 19th Avenue, right there. It's already there. That's Golden Gate Park. It was already there. This huge area, this huge sandbox, basically, is going to turn into the Sunset and Parkside districts. And that huge area there is going to turn into the Richmond district. So sand is stronger than landfill. But if you think about the buildings that are out there now, they are older, and a lot of them are not built according to any code in particular. And so you have to keep in mind the shifting sands underneath those buildings. And I really can't stress enough, if you have buildings out there, you really have to look and see whether they need to be retrofitted. And we, we will talk about that briefly at the very end of the talk. Okay? So let's talk a bit about what to do during a big quake, um, because there are a lot of dangerous myths and misconceptions floating around. So if there was a huge quake, and I mean a, a, a big quake, not just something small, but a big quake, the room's obviously <coughs> shaking a lot, what are you doing? Better yet, where are you? I'll tell you where you're not. You are not running out of the building. And this can be hard because there's millions of years of evolution in your head saying run out of the building fast, right? But fact is, at least in the industrialized nations, most of the injuries that occur to people in these earthquakes are where they're running from inside a building to outside a building. And they're running through that danger zone that exists right on the outside of the building where bricks can fall down, window glass, signs, all sorts of things. And as a matter of fact, after the New Zealand Christchurch quake, I downloaded this footage from CNN. You can see all the people running out of the building, and you can also see what's happening outside those buildings. You can see the bricks falling. And this was an interesting quake, because after the quake, we saw all these pictures of fully collapsed buildings, and we heard all these stories of people trapped in the buildings. And maybe we started to think, gee, maybe, maybe they should have run out of the building. But you want to know something? All those pictures we saw were the same four buildings. Most of the damage in Christchurch looked like this. And so you have to ask whether you would have rather been there or there during the quake. And in fact, if you look at news reports, it's confirmed. There are a lot of people died in areas like this. Now, in addition to these pictures from Christchurch, here's a picture from Napa. Similar thing, right? If you were running from inside the building to outside the building, you would have run into that. And in the Loma Prieta quake, remember I told you that the majority of people died in that collapsing freeway. Well, you want to know where the, the next largest cluster of fatalities were? I think there were four people. It was right on 6th and Bluxem in Soma. Similar story, bricks falling down here. So you just don't want to be there. Now, the next one will surprise people. You're not standing in a doorway. Okay. And this is surprising because, and especially if you're like me, if you're from Southern California, they used to teach us to do that. They used to teach us to brace ourselves in the doorway. But, you know, if you're in a doorway, that door can slam shut. It can pitch you out to where you don't want to be. And this whole thing is based on a myth in the, uh, the old days. You know, the older structures there were made of adobe, which is basically clay, with wooden door frames. And this is my stylized adobe picture. I'm sure they look better than that. But the, wood, the, the door frames were wood. 
And so when the big quakes would occur then, the adobe would pulverize, and all that would be left would be these door frames. And so in, the, in those days, it made sense to get under the door frame. But in a modern building, the door frame is no stronger than the rest of the building. And so you, you don't want to be there. You don't want your fingers getting crushed by the door, etc. So what I'm going to tell you is common sense. You are under something sturdy, under a kitchen table, under a desk. And here's your first precaution. You can look around today or tomorrow, where you live, where you work, and say, hmm, if the room started, were to start to shake, what would I get under? What is strong? What's hopefully not made of a thin glass layer, hopefully away from windows? And especially at work, how many of my coworkers do I need to, to fight off to be the, the winner to get under that one table in the middle of the room? You know, th- these are practical considerations, right? Now, more recently, I've been hearing a, something else. I've been hearing that if your bedroom is set up correctly, and we'll <coughs> talk about that in a minute, if your bedroom is set up correctly, and an earthquake occurs when you're in bed, it can be best just to stay there with your head under a pillow being, being tight. Because apparently what has been happening is a lot of people are getting injured in the middle of the night when they get out of their beds and they get from their bed to their predetermined safe spot, but they're going through less safe areas to get there. So in your bed, you're in a big bumper car. It's just going to be moving around. And as long as nothing is going to fall onto the bed, you should be basically okay. Now, I get a lot of questions about the so-called triangle of life email. It's been going around for years. It's a very compelling sounding email from someone who is a self-described emergency expert who says that he's been to all of these post-earthquake scenarios and that no one who ever got under anything ever survived and that if you get under something, when the whole ceiling comes down in one piece, it'll crush the thing you're under. And that instead, you should get next to something so that when the whole ceiling comes down in one piece, it'll hit the thing you're next to and you'll be in this triangle-shaped safe zone. It's important to realize that this is flatly rejected by all the mainstream emergency organizations. I think a picture is worth a thousand words. This is a school in Koalinga, and you can see the difference between being under a desk or next to a desk if you're one of those kids. Um, These organizations have put together a website that rebuts this this very compelling-sounding email, point by point. And it's important to realize that that email is based on a lot of misconceptions and some things that that simply are are not true that is said in the email. I have my own website that I'll tell you about in a minute that I have a a, a summary of this. I can't go into it in detail today, but I have a summary of these problems that points to their website. And this is actually a good opportunity for me to tell you about a blog that I started several years ago called Quake Tips. I have no financial interests in this whatsoever, but it's a way for me to talk to people and give more information about the triangle of life or uh, what kind of products work. I don't necessarily endorse things, but if I've compared a bunch of products that are good for earthquake preparedness, what works best. And this is basically a uh, running... Um, simulation of the way my blog looked a couple of years ago. So you can see some of the topics that are there. (coughs) This is very helpful because a lot of times I will touch upon something during this talk and I won't have time to say very much about it, but there are a lot more details here. And it's like a frequently asked questions. If you have a question for me, I've probably already answered it in this blog. And I post about once every month or two. So if you subscribe to this blog or if you follow it in some other way, um, you won't be inundated by messages. And again, I stress I don't get anything out of this. I'm not trying to sell anything. So I'll be referring to this blog several times during the course of the talk. Okay, one more thing before we talk about the precautions. What about after uh, an earthquake? You may have seen some of this in uh, Lieutenant Artaceros' talk last week. 
But you may have heard that you're supposed to turn off your gas, or you may have heard that you're not supposed to turn off your gas. And the official word from the utilities companies up and down the state are only turn off your gas if you suspect a gas leak. If you can hear a hissing sound, if you smell gas, if your gas meters are spinning around for no apparent reason. The reason that they don't want you to turn your gas off otherwise is that if you do turn off your gas, the utilities companies do not want you to turn it back on again. They want to come out and inspect the lines. Um, PG&E in the Loma Prieta quake, they tried to tell people not to turn off their gas, but of course they weren't fast enough. 80% of their customers, from what I hear, turned off their gas. And it took PG&E, armed with extra contractors, three weeks to get around to, through the Bay Area and reestablish people's gas. This is controversial, this, this issue of not being able to turn your gas back on. It is controversial. And if you go to my blog, you'll see a, a long article where I researched it. Um, I will not tell people to go against the, the uh, recommendations of the utility companies, but there's a lot more to this than, than that. And I, I would urge you to check out the blog, and you can learn about the issues that are being discussed. Either way, if you do need to turn off your gas, know how to do it and have a wrench handy there so that you can. And if you, you, unless you live in a big, big complex, if you're in a more standard home or a small apartment complex, you'll be able to find your gas meters. You'll see a pipe there with a raised uh, a knob, this raised line here. And if the line is going parallel to the pipe, it means the gas is on. If you were to turn that 90 degrees so that it looks like it's turning off, blocking the gas, then the gas is off. And you know what? Here's another precaution. Because if you go and you find this pipe and you gently try turning that knob a little bit, not, not off, but just maybe an eighth of a turn to see if it works, it probably doesn't. These things freeze in position because they're out there with the elements. So if you find out that you can't move that, don't force it. Just tell PG&E. They'll send someone out for free and fix it for you. You do not want to be unable to turn off your gas if you need to turn off your gas. So you should check that. And it's wise to have a, a, a pipe wrench um, or a crescent wrench wired to the pipe there so you don't have to be looking for one at the last minute. Okay, so this brings us to the actual precautions. Now, I think that you have probably all had conversations like I do. You're, you're talking with someone in the East Coast, Midwest, somewhere else, and you have this conversation. It goes something like this. They say, how can you live in that place with earthquakes? And you say, well, how can you live in that place with hurricanes and tornadoes and killer storms and fires and floods and all these other things? And they come back at you and they say, well, at least we have advance warning. And with that, they win the argument. And you walk away feeling kind of silly, right? I mean, we, we've had that, right? Well, I'm here to tell you that we do have advance warning about earthquakes. We just have it much farther in advance than all those other disasters. So there's, there's going to be an earthquake. Do something about it. There, you've been warned. Okay? Now, the problem is that there's so many precautions you can take. If people see these long lists of things they can do. They get overwhelmed, and they say, well, I'll, I'll figure this out one of these days. And they never get around to it, right? And that's what leads to this, this problem where people haven't taken the precautions. What's important to realize is that some of these precautions are much more important than others. And some of them are much cheaper and easier than others. And so I've broken them down into categories, um, ranging from crucial, things that you've got no excuse not to do if you live in a place with earthquakes, all the way down to nice if possible, if you've done everything else, what can you do? So let's take a look at that first category. I think the most important thing I can tell you is what not to have over the head of your bed. 
Okay, and the Silmarquate, 1971, there's a relative of mine who's even younger than me who had a, a security issue in those days that she would get out of bed in the middle of the night and curl up in the hallway outside her parents' door and sleep there. And during the 1971 quake, they had heavy framed pictures in their hallway, and those pictures did what pictures tend to do. They jumped off their hooks and came crashing down, and one of them missed her head by that much. So tragedy averted, but you can see what could have happened. And if you figure that you've got your head there one-third of your life, and that, you know, San Francisco, maybe one-fifth of your life, who are we kidding, right? <laughs> but, you know, you're there a lot, and when you're there, your head's asleep, and you just don't want to put yourself in that position. So in our, our, an old apartment of, of ours, we had a tapestry on the wall. In our current place, we never got around to putting anything up on the wall. It's just a bare wall. It doesn't look great. Uh, the other consideration here is that you're not supposed to have your bed near windows. Try to keep them as far away from the windows as you can. It's not that you're worried that you're going to go sailing out the window, but if the glass were to break, you would wake up, you'd roll over in bed into broken glass, and you'd get out of bed into broken glass. And in fact, some people will tie a bag of shoes to the bedpost that, 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 so they can walk through the broken glass, but they're still rolling over into broken glass, right? So you're supposed to stay as far away from the windows as you can. And you know, there is an actual booklet out there about earthquake preparedness from a mainstream organization who shall remain nameless. And it says, and I'm not making this up, it says, keep your bed at least 10 feet away from the nearest window. And I've got to wonder what city these people live in where they write something like that. I've, I've, I've never had a bedroom that's more than 10 feet long. You know. but, but you get the idea. And, and it's not going to be the most convenient setup for your room, admittedly. And uh, that's not going to be the most Martha Stewart-approved decor. But these are the, uh, the, the, the compromises that we make when we live in a seismic area. Now, the next thing is emergency, emergency kits. So this is boring, right? We've all heard about emergency kits. And it's not specific to earthquakes. Anywhere you live that's subject to natural or human-made disasters, you're supposed to be able to, to be self-sufficient for, they used to say, 72 hours. Then after Hurricane Katrina, they said a week. Now the Red Cross is starting to talk about two weeks. Okay, You've got to pick your poison. But somewhere in there, you have to be self-sufficient. And it's good to have a portable kit, and to have more supplies at home. So this is a picture of a portable kit. And it's big. You know, years ago, it used to be a little backpack, like the kind that they sell. And over the years, as I saw what people were experiencing in their various disasters, and I thought, well, what would we want to have with us if we had to go to a shelter? This kit has grown. It's no longer something I'm going to pick up. This actually has a telescopic handle and wheels, like carry-on luggage. It's like a rolling duffel bag. So that's our portable kit. And then we have more supplies in the closet. So let's, let's go over this. Let's think about this for a minute. What are you going to do about food? You can have canned food. Um, food in cans lasts for two or three years. Uh, the the uh, best buy dates, or in some cases expiration dates, are pretty short-lived. I'm a big fan of these MREs, Meals Ready to Eat. They're ostensibly military rations, but they're also used for emergency relief. You can get them through non-military websites if it makes any difference to you. And these are really good. There are hundreds of menus, the, the macaroni and cheese, baked chicken, pork ribs. You know, they're very good. They have a chemical packet that you put some water in and that heats up so you can have a hot meal. And they're, they're really pretty impressive. They, if you get them when they're new, they're like a good hospital cafeteria food, okay? And at the end of their, their sort of shelf life, 
Um, well, let's just say if you're if you don't mind opening up a can of Chef Boyardee ravioli and eating it, you'll be perfectly happy with these at the end of their shelf life. And in fact, there's been some controversy over how long these things last. The, the authorities go up and down with it, but fact is that when these things are past their their prime. They're not bad for you. They just don't guarantee the taste and texture. So if you go to my blog, you'll see a series of articles where I ended up by testing a 14-year-old MRE. ate a 14-year-old MRE. I'm clearly still here to, to tell about it. And so you can read all about my experiences on the blog. Suffice it to say they last a long time if you have them on a nice, cool closet floor. There are also things like this, uh, fat and calories in a bar. You can stash these things in your car, in your office at work. They're, they're good. And we have some of them at home, too. Uh, now, what about water? So water is a problem. Okay? The official recommendations say a gallon of water per person per day for even up to seven days, that's 14 gallons of water for a couple. So where are you going to put all of that, especially if you live in a small city place? So what we always used to do in the past is we would have a couple of gallons of water in our closet, and the rest of it would be in whatever storage locker we had in our parking structure or whatever. And in our current home, we don't have any storage outside the unit. And so I actually put extra shelves up in the back of our closet, and I'm storing the water there. I will recommend, though, that you always have them in shelves, because if you get these gallon jugs from the supermarket, if you stack one on top of another, after a year or two, the bottom one starts to crack with all that pressure. And then there's water everywhere. And this has happened to me. It's happened to someone else I know. So we always have them on shelves, and we always have them individually bagged. I do have some good news for you. If you don't like the idea of storing these gallon jugs because once every year or two you reach the expiration date and you've got to dump them all out and lug more up from the store, the FDA says you can ignore the expiration date on these bottles of water. And I've got an article on my blog about that. Um, if you fill your own containers with water, this does not apply. But if you buy water that's been professionally bottled from the store, you can keep it. There's no BPA in the plastic. If you drink it, it might have a slightly off taste that usually goes away if you just aerate it again. And you, you won't be poisoning yourself or anything like that. So that makes it a lot easier to do something like this. I actually have several articles on the blog about different water purification issues and water storage. Okay, I have to apologize ahead of time about this slide because it's remarkably dry and boring. It's just a list of things that we have in our kit and that's on the handout, it's on the web, but we can try going through this as quickly as possible. Um, food and water for three to seven or even 14 days, yes. Can opener if you have cans, utensils if you want. First aid kit makes sense. Spare shirt and pants because uh, Murphy's Law says if there's an earthquake, you're not wearing what you want to be wearing in an earthquake. And so it can be nice to have something to change into. Work gloves in case you need to clean up some broken glass or maybe even a little bit of rubble. This is really important, cash. Okay, you have to assume that in an extended emergency scenario that the banks are closed, the ATMs don't work, your credit cards don't work. Even if the stores are open, you're limited to cash on hand. So you want to have an envelope of cash stashed in your emergency kit. And I'm going to add to that small bills. Because think about that. If you had $100 in 20s and you needed to buy a battery and someone could sell you a battery but they didn't have any change, you're going to spend $20 and one-fifth of your emergency cash on a battery. So you want fives, ones, maybe even some quarters. Um, emergency blankets, in case you're worried that you're going to be cold because you turned off your gas and didn't turn it back on. The, the kind that you take camping are very good. 
radios and flashlights, of course. And, you know, for years now they've had these combo devices that you can recharge by shaking or cranking or nuclear fusion. I mean, they're, they're coming up with new and better every day. So these are good. Uh, spare batteries, because you presumably have some battery-powered devices. In my blog, I recently put an article about the different kinds of batteries that are out there, some of which are better for emergency kits than others. Uh, light sticks are very convenient, not only the old-fashioned kind, but also the newer battery-powered LED versions that are only a few bucks. Whistle is good to have. I told you that my mother was stuck in her apartment in the, the Northridge quake, and a neighbor came to get her out. That neighbor knew to look for her. And if she had been stuck there without anyone looking for her and without a telephone working, well, a whistle is very loud and is very small, so it makes sense. A lot of this is common sense. Pocket knife. I have marking pen, uh, paper pad, and duct tape here because if you need to go to a shelter or something like that, people might look for you. You might want to put a note up saying where you are. And if it's raining, you can put it into a Ziploc bag and put it up with the duct tape, and you're fine. Uh, speaking of rain, rain ponchos. So these, a lot of these things are very, very compact. A lot of this is personal. Any vitamins or personal medications that you absolutely cannot be without, you'd better figure out how to have an emergency supply of them. And I know that with certain prescriptions, it's difficult to do that, but just picture yourself in the aftermath of a quake for a week without access to these medications. You should have something planned. And similarly, personal sanitary supplies. In other words, no one likes to think about the toilet paper issue, but think about the toilet paper issue. They've got toilet paper packs without the roll in it, so, and you can have plastic bags, and we'll just let your imagination run wild. Spare eyeglasses if you need. Supplies for the pets, don't forget the pets. Out-of-town contact info is very important. Some of you have probably experienced this before. If there's a disaster, you might not be able to call across town but you can still call out of town. They're different lines. So if you have someone in Southern California or in a different state who is the predetermined contact point, then everyone here can call that person and give them messages back and forth. And if you rent, uh, know how to get in touch with your landlord, of course. Now, I've put a few extra things down here at the bottom. Family emergency plan, again, not specific for earthquakes, but if some disaster occurs during the day, how are you going to reunite with the people at work, at school, if you can't all get home? So you want to think about that ahead of time. Having your insurance info backed up is wise. And power failure backup lights, I really, really recommend these. And I, I wrote a whole blog article about these. I'm not talking about the, the lights, the flashlights that are already, always charged in the outlet. I'm talking about the lights that are always sitting in the outlet off. But if you cut the power or if you pull them out, then they turn on. And now they've got about 12 hours of charge. So these are really useful. This means that you will never wake up to a dark room during an emergency. And last but not least, and you know it's getting harder and harder to, to justify this, but the good old corded telephone with landline service. Okay, I don't know how much longer this is even going to be feasible, but in all but the brand new buildings, that phone jack has its own power from the, the phone company. So even if your lights are out for a week, you can still take a phone and plug it into the phone jack and, and make a phone call. Um, your cordless phones might have stopped working. The cell phone would have stopped working. Even if you can charge the cell phone, the cell towers might be gone, right? But that, that option is always there if you've got the phone on the landline surface. So we'll see how long this, this remains a viable option. So thank you for putting up with that slide. The last in this category is to brace your water heater. Really, this is for homeowners. 
and to not make it look like this. This is a picture that I took in our old apartment in the Sunset District. Turns out that a lot of water heaters that look like this fell over in uh, Loma Prieta and Northridge Quakes. So apparently they've given up trying to tell you how to brace a water heater. And the U.S. Geological Survey says, go to the hardware store, tell them that you need to brace your water heater, and they'll work with you to give you what you need. This is a picture from the USGS. Okay, next category down. I told you about pictures jumping off of hooks. This is a big problem. I do like these maze picture hooks. They're ingenious. They're a little piece of plastic. This is what it looks like from the front. That's from the side. And they're basically a plastic hook, but the hook is zigzag. And so if you see here from the picture wire, if that picture were to jump around in an earthquake, the wire would get trapped in the maze. It wouldn't jump off. And it's surprisingly easy to put the pictures up. You grab the wire on both sides, and you just thread it right down. And you can even take the picture off by grabbing the wire on both sides and threading it back out. It's much easier than it sounds. Uh, but pl please do not use this as an excuse to hang a heavy picture over your bed because <laughs> nothing's foolproof. That part of the wall could fail, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, for smaller things, th this is good. Now, if you don't brace anything else in your homes, please look for these tall, freestanding bookcases. They're notorious for falling over in earthquakes. And we've got a great, great picture here from, uh, this was in all the newspapers after the Napa quake. This poor woman had all these things fall over. This is a really interesting photo because you can see which direction the earthquake was going. Right? None of these fell over, but the ones going this way did. And so you can brace these to the wall at the top, and they do have products that make it easy to do this. And I have to say that there's no official endorsement of any particular product or company by UCSF or by me or by the Osher Mini Medical School or by UCTV for that matter, but these folks have the, the market locked up. Okay, if you go into a hardware store, these are the ones you'll see. So I have a picture of them. They come in different colors that match the furniture. And basically, they're very, very strong Velcro, where the, the uh, fuzzy part permanently adheres to the top of the, the furniture. And the hook part is in a strap that you then bolt to various locations on the wall. So this is very nice because if you need to move that cabinet or bookcase, you can just undo the Velcro, move it out of the way, and then put it back. It actually gives a little bit of play to it, which is actually good. It, it helps it to survive the quake. The one caveat is that you have to bolt these to wall studs. You can't just go into the sheetrock, drywall, or plaster. You need to find the wall studs. I don't have time to tell you how to work with wall studs, but as you could probably guess, I have a long article on the blog that talks about wooden and metal wall studs, how to find them, how to work with them. And so I urge you to go and check that out if you have any questions of how to do this. Now, similarly, if you have stereo components, speakers, computer components, etc., that sit on tables or desks or shelves, and sometimes they're even stacked on each other, there are various products that allow you to stick them down. So this is the original one, buckles and straps. And I don't think that this is available anymore. I think that's been pretty much replaced with this style, which is half Velcro and half buckle. And if you need to stack things on top of each other, they have double-sided Velcro blocks that let you do that. So you have a choice about how you want to stick items like this down. You definitely don't want your stereo systems to, to fly apart, right? Uh, similarly, those flat panel monitors and TVs that are becoming ubiquitous, they can fall over too. And this company shows this as an example of how to brace a flat panel computer monitor or TV. Now, I think this makes sense for a TV because there's frequently a wall behind the TV set. 
So it's only going to fall forward. I don't think it makes sense for a computer monitor. We frequently have computer monitors on desks in the middle of the room, so they could fall backwards too. Uh, the U.S. Geological Survey has a picture like this as a good example of how to brace a monitor. And here's a picture from my own home. This is on my desk. I've got a Dell monitor that raises and swivels. So I'm using these buckle and strap combinations to brace the bottom. If you think about items on shelves, it could take a very large earthquake to make books fly off the shelf. But you know what? It only takes a small earthquake to set up vibrations that make objects walk. And if they walk far enough, they fall off and they can damage themselves or whatever's underneath. And so this is a very simple shelf lip. It's just picture wire between two screw eyes. Simple to do. Um, you just pick the books up over the wire. And after I did this, I discovered a nice product out there. I think there's only one of its kind, so I don't mind showing it. It's like a uh, very good quality, good-looking bungee cord that you cut down to size, and there are plastic ends that crimp on the edge, and you can screw these plastic ends to the bookcase behind it. So this is really nice. If I want to get a book out, I just pull the bungee cord down. I pull out the book. But if there was an earthquake and all of these books were to start walking forward at the same time, this cord would hold them in. It's great for books. Now, we didn't used to worry about CDs. I mean, CDs are indestructible, right? They fall down, you pick them up, big deal. But for the last several years, we've had a small dog in uh, our household. And so you always have to keep the, the little people in the family in mind. It occurred to me that if there was an earthquake, that little dog could be looking up, and all these sharp plastic corners could be raining down on the little dog. So voila, we now have these for our CDs also. I must admit that we don't have as many CDs on our shelf as we used to. This picture is getting a little dated. But this does raise this issue. The little people in your family, the two-legged and four-legged varieties, they don't know what's coming. And in fact, if you go to my blog, you'll see an article that I wrote for the 2010 uh, Cole Hardware Newsletter about other precautions to take if you have stay-at-home pets so that if it takes you a while to get home, they're safe from whatever aftermath of the quake they're encountering in the home. So you can, you can check that out. I think if you were to come over to my home and look at everything that we've done, all the earthquake precautions, you'd see that over half of them are for the dog. <laughs> now, next category down. Think about your kitchen cabinets. Think about everything in them. And you might have hard-to-open cabinet doors. They might be magnetic latches or very stiff things. But if everything is shaking, and especially if everything on the inside is trying to push its way out, those doors are going to fly right open. And so if you think about everything you've got back there, all the dishes and glasses and the oils and vinegars and condiments, and you know, all that stuff that you have <coughs> on the floor in a big pile of goop and broken glass, that's what my father was cleaning up for days after the uh, Northridge quake. So some people will protect against this by installing those child-proof latches, that, you know, the kind where the door opens an inch and you slide your finger back there and you, you move a, a latch. I love to cook. I'm in and out of these doors all the time. I think that's remarkably inconvenient. And so I really like these push latches, otherwise known as touch latches. They're a claw and a peg. And basically, here's, a, here's how they work. It's a video I took with my camera a few years ago. So you can't pull the door open. But if you push first, they disengage. Now you can pull the door open. If you push again and close it, it re-engages, and now you can no longer open it. You've seen these doors before. But you can install the latches yourself. And the only reason that it's down in this third category is because this is not actually all that straightforward to do correctly. Um, I did write a blog article about all the little tips and tricks that I've encountered as I've been doing this. It's by far the most viewed 
blog article, and I think that some company somewhere is officially sending people to my blog for instructions on how to use their product, because it gets a lot of fits. So you can go and, and take a look at that. So you may have looked into earthquake insurance in the past. You may have run away screaming. It's uh, pretty darn expensive. I will say, and for, for full disclosure, my mother used to be an insurance agent. That has nothing to do with me talking about this now. Um, it is true that after the Northridge quake, her earthquake insurance paid for three weeks in a hotel and all new possessions after the deductible. And the, the deductible is large. The premiums are large. I hope that they can figure out a way to make this more affordable because I think it makes sense, but I also think that there are valid reasons to not have it. So you just have to decide for yourself whether the risks outweigh the, the benefits. If you are interested in it, the vast majority of the earthquake policies out there all come from the California Earthquake Authority, and all of your insurance companies deal with them. So you don't really have to shop around that much. You can just ask your favorite insurance agent, who, whoever it is, what kind of policy they have for you. Last category, if you've done everything else, what else can you do? Well, seriously consider sticking down loose objects. This might seem overkill, but if you think about it, in the 1971 earthquake, we had two items fall off the shelf. But in the same place, in the 1994 earthquake, my mother tells me that every loose object on any surface turned into a high-speed projectile that flew from one side of the room to the other, including the microwave oven. Okay? So this is, she said, it was very, very scary. And so this fellow here is actually stuck down to the shelf with quake putty under the feet. And there are a number of products out there that you can use. Now, I told you I would not endorse any particular product, but I feel I can unendorse a product. I, I've been doing this for a long time, and I've moved several times, so you have the benefit that you, I know what doesn't work. And I don't like this museum wax. It's really hard to clean up. It's goopy. It leaves oil stains. It's, it's a mess. I like the line of putties. They're all basically the same thing. They're like silly putty. They're cream-colored. And you pull off wads of it, three or four wads, and you put them under the object that you want to stick down. And you take the object and you press down and twist back and forth just a little bit. And when you do that, now you can't pick it up, you can't knock it over, you can't slide it. Fortunately, if you want to pick it up, you still can. It's not permanent. You grab the object, you pull up, and you twist a little bit, and it comes right off. And the stuff is reusable. If any of it stays behind, you take the rest of it and you dab at it, and you'll pull up the remainder. In most cases, it doesn't leave a mark. There can be some problems with painted walls, and I have some, uh, some information about that on my blog. But this is great stuff, and really the only problem is it's not clear. So if you wanted to stick down a clear crystal bowl or vase or something like that, you're out of luck. Well, they do have one product out there, only one that I know of, that's clear. It's called Quake Hold Gel, and it looks like a cup of water. But this actual stuff, you can pull out a wad of it, you can shape it, you can put it under the objects, and it temporarily is cloudy and then it becomes clear again. And the only limitation here is that you can only use this on non-porous surfaces. You can't use it on unfinished wood or things like that. It won't work. And one other thing that you can do with these, by the way, is you may have stopped your cabinet doors from opening, but you didn't stop the contents from shifting, right? So if you have a lot of expensive wine glasses, those things can, can really be damaged in an earthquake. So what some people do, and we've done this, is they stick the wine glasses down with a quick putty. Um, and it's actually not that bad to take them off. There's a trick to it, okay? You grab them by the base, and, and I stress, by the base. If you grab the top, you'll just break the stem off, right? It's by the base. It's a twist and a tilt. They come off. 
You peel off the quake buddy. It doesn't leave a residue. You don't have to wash the glass. Just drop it on the shelf because when you put the glass back, you'll use the same pieces again. So it's a, a little bit of a hassle the first time to set up, but afterwards you're fine. Okay, I did want to mention briefly towards the end of the talk the importance of making sure that your home is, is seismically attached properly to the foundation. Um, this is really important, but it's not cheap and it's not easy, and it's not something you're going to do tonight. And that's why it's in this lowest um, category. But if you are, find yourself needing to do that, especially if you have a home that was built before the early 70s, especially if it's on soft soil, especially if it's a soft story construction. You can go to hardware stores. I know Cole Hardware does this. You go to hardware stores and ask for referrals for qualified contractors. Um, that costs thousands of dollars, no doubt about that. But this is really pretty important. As someone said to me the very first time I ever gave one of these talks, he said, what's the point in protecting all the things in your home if your house falls down? Right? So this is a good to look into. And, of course, if you've done everything else, consider joining NERJ or, in other cities, CERT organizations. Now, everyone here in this room just got a talk from the lieutenant who heads the NERJ program in San Francisco last week. For the benefit of the people who are watching this online later, I do want to mention that NERJ grew out of the Loma Prieta earthquake. We're the original ones here. The fire department was overstressed, overtaxed, and there weren't enough of them to do what they needed to do. The civilians came out to try to help. Some of them succeeded in helping. Some of them just got in the way. The fire department decided that we should train an army of volunteers for the next time. And I think at last count, I think they've trained something like 20,000 people in, in the last couple of decades. I'm, I'm a member of NERT. If you walk into any random room in San Francisco and you say, how many people here are NERT volunteers? At least one or two people will raise their hands. We're, we're all over the place. It's a very, very notable program. And what they do is they will train you in six free evening sessions or two or three free day-long sessions, depending on how you decide to do it. And they train you in, in rudimentary first aid and triage, light search and rescue skills. And if there is a, a big emergency, earthquakes are the, the big one that we're expecting, um, if you and your family and neighbors are okay, you self-deploy, you get your stuff, you go to a predetermined location in your district, and essentially the fire department sends you out in teams to do the easier things so that they can concentrate on the really hard stuff. This will make a huge difference the next time that there's a big disaster. It's very, very worthwhile thinking about. And for UCSF, there's actually a UCSF NERD chapter. So there are multiple ways of getting involved in this way. So we're almost at the end of the talk. I want to mention that uh, those of you here in the room have this in your handout. This, uh, or a version of it, shows up on my website. It's just a list of resources. I'm not necessarily endorsing companies, but they're good informational websites. It's good information from... Um, the, uh, about the insurance from the U.S. Geological Survey about a lot of the things we've talked about, information about NERT and CERT organizations. This is um, that, that web page that was put together to rebut the Triangle of Life email and all of the misconceptions in it. I've got my own website that has pictures that you've seen here tonight along with other pictures that I didn't have time to put in and, of course, the Quake Tips blog that I told you about that I write. The two of these talk to each other, so if you find one, you'll find the other. If you forget everything, and you just all you have to do is Google Matt Springer earthquake, and you'll find all this information. Uh, lastly, you can tell I like to talk about this stuff, so I've, I've got my email there, and I will take questions afterwards, but if anyone has a problem finding something, or they don't know how to do something, or they just have a question about something, 
feel free to email me, and don't be surprised if, if it's something I've never answered before, if it turns into a future blog article. That's how several of my articles have gotten started. And I want to leave you with one final thought. These precautions that we've been talking about are a real hassle, right? They're annoying. They're inconvenient, right? But I want you to think about those keys that you carry around with you constantly. You lock your door in the morning. You take those keys in your purses, your backpacks, your pockets, everywhere you go. You even run the risk that if you lose them, you're going to lock yourself out of your home. Why would you do something so amazingly inconvenient? The only reason that you're doing it is because you're worried that someone's going to rob your house. Okay? I've got news for you. If you live in a place like the Bay Area, I'm willing to bet that the chances that you will experience a Loma Prieta-style earthquake are larger than the chances that someone is going to rob your house. So I think that it's just common sense to make the, uh, the precautions that you take match the risks that you face. And with that, I'm going to stop. I'll, I'll take any questions, and thank you very much for your attention. Right. Let, let me repeat that for the people who, who are online viewers. So, the, so to distill that for, for, <laughs> for their sake, the, the issue is, are you really safer on solid rock than you are on sandy soil or landfill? And that if you feel safe on solid rock, that you, you, you might be overconfident. And I completely agree with that. I would not want people to think that they are safe because they're on solid rock. It's just that if you're on soft soil, you increase the number of things that can go wrong. And so what I like to think about is, let's say you've, you've got a little, a little house and it's built on a brick. And I take that brick and I shake it. Oh, you're going to have problems, right? But if I have that house on a layer of gravel on, the, on top of the brick and I shake it, you're either going to have more problems or you're going to have an increased risk of problems that might not have been problems, a problem if you were just on the brick. But what's going on underneath the ground is very complex. And as a matter of fact, apparently the reason that the New Zealand Christchurch created such problems is because there's some, there's some underground uh, rock formation that's like a, a, a hyperbola uh, um, or a parabola or something like that. And I, I'm really not the expert on this. I'm just repeating what I've heard. And apparently one set of shockwaves came through and did some kind of magnification deal in the inside and created a larger quake than would have happened, uh, occurred otherwise. So even the solid substructure can create a great deal of problems. I want to mention also it's not just landfill. You know, if you look at the uh, piles that are going down through our landfill areas, there's actually just about 30 feet of landfill. And then there's hundreds of feet of different bay mud uh, con- layers confirmation. So it's all of these soft soils put together getting down to bedrock. So thank you for that. It's absolutely true. Just because you're on solid ground doesn't mean that you are safe from the effects of earthquakes at all. Okay, so the, so the question basically is about the, well, there's two parts, and actually there's, there's the question. I, I wanted to, to comment on the first thing you said first. So, so the question itself was regarding trees. Are trees going to be a hazard in earthquakes or, or not. And, and as, you, as you absolutely you point out, if you look along fault lines in the Bay Area, you see a lot of trees that have clearly been there for a long time. Right? If there's an earthquake, you can have uprooted trees. You can have branches falling. It's probably not the largest hazard. I'm probably more concerned with falling structures, pieces of buildings, electrical wires coming down. Um, during the Loma, yeah, the Loma Prieta quake, I am proud of myself. I had the forethought and the presence of mind that the first thing I did was to look around me and say, anything there can fall on me, 
None of the trees are close enough. None of the buildings are close enough. The only thing that can fall on me is that clock tower. And if that clock tower were to fall over like that, the top would hit me. So I just kept my eyes on the clock tower. But, yeah, the trees, you know, they're meant to be flexible. They're meant to sway around. And I think that the problem with trees is probably not a big problem for earthquakes. Clearly, they can be a fire hazard. And so the trees that we have at UCSF, for example, if you look at Mount Sutro with the eucalyptus, you know, that is kindling, right, with, with volatile oils. So from a fire That's standpoint... No. no. That's no. a total misnomer. No. Please, please, okay, so we, we have a disagreement. So I am not an expert. I'm just, so please do, please, please explain. So, so what would you say? No more dangerous than other trees. No more dangerous than other trees. But there is a huge forest there, though. Right. So if there was a fire, that would certainly... Confla- what is the word? Conf- conflagration. Yeah. So you could still have a problem. I, I worry about running out in, from a building into a bunch of burning trees. But that's a, that's a different topic. It's I mean, a cloud forest. There's, there's very, very low chance of fire. There. So the, the opinion coming from the audience is a very low chance of fire coming from there. I, I guess, the, let me just explain that I, I'm not trying to come out as anti-tree. I'm just saying that I think that the trees... <laughs> The trees are a bigger concern for fires than they are for earthquakes. That's, my, yes. that's the point I'm trying to make. They are public programs. Yes, and so I want to expound upon that. And I thank you for raising that. So, again, for the online audience, so the, the issue here is that running out of the building is something that you don't want to do in an earthquake right away, that you do want to do if your building is on fire. And so emergency preparedness for fires and earthquakes, there's a very fundamental difference here. And it's interesting because if you think about your emergency kit, people ask me where to store the emergency kit. And they say, well, that emergency kit, shouldn't you have it right there by the front door ready to go because you're going to be racing out of there? And I usually say, well, if you are concerned about a fire, then you probably want a go bag where you can just grab it and go. But actually, if you think about it, the chances that you're going to find yourself evacuating suddenly as quickly as possible from a building during an earthquake are very, very slim because you're not supposed to be running out of the building during the earthquake. Clearly, if your building is in the act of falling down, you're going to want to get out of there, but that's very rare. So if your building is shaking, you don't want to make a quick exit, and then, now it's stopped, you're going to have a little time to assess whether you're in danger or not. And so the concept of there being an earthquake and grabbing a bag and running probably will not happen to most of us very different from the fire. And so it might be worthwhile to have a small go bag for fires right by the door and have a larger earthquake kit somewhere else. Yes, the question is about row houses. Like in San Francisco, a lot of times the entire block is houses that are up against the next house. And so are the ones on the corner more vulnerable? Now, I'm not an expert on that, but I can tell you that in, in our NERC training, that's what they said, that the ones that are between homes are being buttressed by those homes and it's the ones in the corner that are going to be the least stru- uh, structurally sound because they have nothing holding them up. So theoretically, yes, that's, the, that's it. Well, you know, it's interesting because when I took NERT, they actually taught a triangle, but it was a different triangle. So you now the, the, this thinking may have evolved over the years, but when I took NERT, it was, I think, 2007, 2006, 2007. And one of the firefighters mentioned, he referenced triangle in a completely different way. He said, if you're in a room and there's nothing to get under at all, he said, find a wall, curl up where the wall hits the floor, curl up into a little ball. And the reason was that sometimes what can happen is that beams can come unhinged on one side and not on the other. And instead of falling down like this, 
they tend to do that. And so if your beam is going to do that, and you're right here, it'll miss this triangular spot. If you're right here, it'll, it'll be here and you'll be in a triangle. And of course, if it's doing this, you're out of luck. <laughs> but but that, was, that was the triangle that they referenced during, during the talk at the time. Yes, I sure hope so. The question is about early warning systems for earthquakes, which is a really, it's a hot topic right now. It's been for years efforts to try to get early warning systems up and running. And you know, you, you can't predict an earthquake, but earthquakes don't happen everywhere at the same time. They start here, and then the waves radiate out. It can take minutes to, to travel. And so the concept of an early warning system is that if you have an earthquake that starts here, if you send information out at the speed of electrical signals and radio waves and the like, it'll get to the far-flung regions before the earthquake does. And that can give you seconds or even minutes. Even a few seconds, warning is enough for hospital, you know, for surgeries to, to stop, for, for public transit like BART to, to stop. People can start getting ready for it. And some countries like Mexico, Japan, they have these things up and running. They're working on them. I think in the Japan quake, as a matter of fact, it, it was working. We're very, very behind here. And during the Napa quake, apparently the folks at Berkeley were saying that there was a, a, a test system that actually did tell them that the quake was coming. If we could just get the funding for this, and the funding is the big question, if we can get the funding for this, you could have earthquake early warning all of, along the West Coast. Um, the folks at Berkeley, uh, Richard Allen is the guy there, as a matter of fact, who's been really espousing this, trying to get funding for this for years. Um, just within the past few months, they actually, they, they announced that they were starting to come up with funding. I think not enough yet, but the first chunk. And so this is always an issue. You know, the, the governments, they, they're trying to feed people. They're trying to, they're trying to do all sorts of things. There are a lot of budget priorities that are fighting. They're all important, but the early warning system, if implemented, could presumably potentially save hundreds or thousands of lives if the big one occurs at the time. So I, I really hope that the, the question was actually framed as, in a few years, will the talk be what to do when you get the early warning? And I really hope that it is. All right, thank you very much, everybody. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.